James chapter 2 is the scripture reading this evening. James chapter 2, and the text is the first seven verses. We will not be rereading that, so please pay attention, especially as we read those first seven verses. James chapter 2. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of, or with, judges with evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? And then, Next time, we'll continue looking at the rest of these verses. If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said... Do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, What doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man, like myself, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe. And tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. The text is verses 1 through 7. We will interact with the language in those verses in the sermon this evening. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, so far in our series on James, we've worked through the first chapter. And what I think has stood out to everyone about this first chapter is just how practical it is, and then also how James, with a pastoral spirit, gets right to the heart of the issue. And he brings exactly the word of exhortation that the saints, to whom he was writing, were in need of. On the one hand, he doesn't mince any words, he doesn't beat around the bush, and yet on the other hand, it's clear that he's got a real pastoral concern for the spiritual well-being of these saints who were going through difficult trials. And in addition, as we worked through that first chapter, I think we also saw clearly that the exhortations that he gives in the chapter are exactly the same exhortations that the church of Jesus Christ today also needs to hear. And I think that's also impressed upon us now as we continue in our series and go on with chapter 2 and the subject matter Jesus, James brings up in these verses we look at tonight. Because this matter that James now brings up in verses 1 through 7 is a major issue in the church, isn't it? In fact, Even this past week, I had a hesitancy to preach on these verses because in my judgment, this is a very serious issue in the church community. And I know that this sermon has to be preached the right way, and even then, some people might not still like it. It would be easier to not talk about this. And even for myself, I need to be constantly asking myself, am I preaching a certain way because I want to be a respecter of persons. Well, the text this evening touches on a sensitive issue because the fact is we are all more prone to be respecter of persons than we even realize. And we're even prone to be comfortable. We, we, we're comfortable with it being that way. This may even be the way that feels safe for some of us. We like those who know how to flatter us or who have a sharp wit. There are people who encourage us to be respecters of persons and and we are even glad to go with it. We view them highly. We want their favor. And so we do what they're expecting us to do. We like those who are rich and who give us their attention. It makes us feel good. We are so prone to judge people based on their money or their clothes, or their beauty, or their title, their education, their job, their last name, 
their circle of influence, and shamefully, even such things as their accent, the color of their skin, or even where they supposedly stand on a certain issue, and whether they agree with my thought patterns or not. And if I can be part of this club or this association, then I have status, then I have respect. Or some people think, I need to defend my family member. Our family sticks together. I don't even want to make an honest assessment on issues. I just come to the defense of those who are my earthly relation. And then the attitude so easily arises, I am of Paul, I am of Peter, I am of Apollos. Instead of striving to do what is right, we first ask, will this please the right people in our circles and their strongly held personal convictions? The fact is, beloved, respect of persons is exactly how the whole culture around us runs. There's no other way to say it. This is exactly how the culture around us runs. But it has absolutely no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Instead of living by the perfect law of liberty, love your neighbor as yourself, what we so often do is this, treat a person based on how we think that person can impact us or serve us or benefit us in one way or another. James says this is sin. It's arrogant, it's destructive, and it's completely contrary to God, who is no respecter of persons. Rather, this is offensive to God. And it's certainly not how God has dealt with you and me through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to see the blessed gospel in the preaching this evening. That's where we're also going to highlight how serious this whole subject is spiritually. This is a word of instruction that the church in James' day needed to hear, and this is a word of instruction that the church throughout all ages, also today, needs to hear. We take as our theme the vain religion of showing favoritism. First, we look at the sin itself. What is favoritism? Second, we look at the offensive nature of this sin. And then third, we look at the way to avoid it. What is favoritism? In verse 1, James writes, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Now we're going to revisit verse 1 later on in the chapter, but right now we're focusing in just on those last words of the verse respect of persons. Literally, the word that James uses there means this, to receive the face, which means you receive a person or you reject a person simply by their outward appearance, by what you see. One definition is this, favoritism is the fault of one who, when called on to give judgment has respect to the outward circumstances of men and not to their intrinsic merits, and so prefers as the more worthy one who is rich, high-born, powerful, to another who is destitute of such gifts. Now, in the Bible, you can read of many examples of favoritism. Children in catechism class, remember recently we've just looked at the family of Jacob and Joseph, remember Jacob had two, had two wives, Leah and Rachel, and he favored 
his one wife, Rachel, and then he had sons, and, and with Rachel he had two sons, and those were his favorite sons, Joseph, with his coat of many colors, and Benjamin, and Father Jacob showed favoritism. That was wrong of him to, to act that way. Think of the whole nation of Israel when they wanted a king. Remember the kind of king they wanted? A king like all the nations around them. And when God gave them Saul, a handsome, tall man, they were well pleased. That was favoritism. Think of when Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, comes to Jesse's house, and Samuel himself is ready to show favoritism as well. Surely this oldest will be the one whom God has chosen to be king. He is handsome enough. And God says, no, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart." Think of how Absalom, wicked Absalom, played the entire nation so that he won the allegiance of many, showing off his long hair and with his charm telling the people just what they wanted to hear. That's favoritism, partiality. Think of Judas Iscariot, who followed Jesus when he thought Jesus could be of advantage to him, and then he betrayed Jesus when he realized that Jesus was not going to be of advantage to him. All his whole life in Jesus' ministry, all of that was favoritism. Think of how the people were behaving in the church at Corinth. The rich people were having the Lord's Supper by themselves, getting drunk, enjoying their wealth together, and the poor people could come later on and have the leftovers. Well, here in James 2, James himself gives a, an example of, of daily life in the church, of what he's thinking of. And the language that he uses in verse 2 tells us that this was something that was possibly, perhaps even probably, happening in the church in James' day. James was perhaps even thinking of a specific event he himself had heard take place in one of these churches that he was writing to. And the example that James uses is this. Imagine there you are as a church body gathering for worship. You're in a relatively small room, right? You're a, a, a group of poor Christians, predominantly, a small congregation. And suddenly, just before church is about to begin, a man comes walking in. And this man is dressed to impressed. He is clearly a very wealthy man. The passage says he's got a gold ring. And, and literally, the language there says he's gold-fingered which means not just one ring, but multiple rings on all his fingers. Gold rings. By, by the way, evidently this man would have been a, a Jewish man because that was the practice of the Jewish social elite. The, the rich Jews in this day would show off their status with gold rings. In fact, I read this past week that in these days you could even go to a store to rent gold rings in order to, to show off your social status. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? And verse 2 says, he's wearing goldly apparel. And the word goldly is literally the word that means bright or shining. He's wearing shiny clothes. It's clear that this man has money, he understands fashion, he has taste, and maybe he even has an air of confidence to go along with it. And now imagine this man walks into church, and a church member or two is greatly impressed. They get up from their front row seat, and they say to the man, here, sir, you can sit here right in, right in the front of church in the best seat. 
And the man maybe winks at them, gives a little smile, and gladly takes their seat at the front of church. And then imagine this. Not a second later, another man starts walking into church. And this man is quite the opposite. You read that this man in verse 2 is a poor man in vile raiment, dirty clothes. He's wearing shabby, ragged, stinky, stained clothes. Clothes that he's been sleeping in, that he's been sweating in, that he's been living in for the last weeks. This man probably doesn't have the nicest haircut or his beard trimmed. He, he looks like he's just walked off the street. And maybe he even looks a little sheepish, sheepish to be in church because all these people are strangers. Maybe he knows he stinks and he feels uncomfortable. And now imagine that man starts walking into church and the usher stops him and, and says, um, Sir, why don't you sit over there in the back corner? Or, or right here on the ground by this man's footstool, why don't you sit right there? And maybe as the man tries to find his spot, people glance his way and they make a scowly face at him. What's wrong with this whole picture? Possibly happening in the church in James' day. Well, what's wrong is not that the rich man is rich or that the poor man is poor. What's wrong is how the church members are choosing to behave so radically different towards the one visitor as compared the other visitor. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why does this happen? And this kind of gets into the second point of the sermon, but I want to say it already now. The reason this happens is because these people in church are not loving their neighbor as themselves, but they are selfish and they are self-centered. Because at the heart of it, the reason people act this way is this. What's in it for me? Or in the case of the church as a whole body, the question might be, what's in it for us? Right? Think about it. This church is predominantly characterized by poor members. It's a small church that's been scattered away from Jerusalem. They're enduring hard trials. They see a rich man showing interest in their church. And they think to themselves, this man may be of value to us. He might benefit us with his money. He could sure help us out. We better be nice to him. And then they see the poor man, and they think to themselves, this man's even poorer than us. If this man should join the church, he's only going to be a further burden on the church. That's how the people are thinking. They're thinking about themselves. They're selfish. And that's how they're behaving as professed Christians. And James says in verse 6, you're despising the poor. And James says in verse 4, Are ye then not partial in yourselves and are become judges with evil thoughts? James says, if, if this is how you're acting, do you realize how judgmental you are? People are coming into church and you are prejudging them based on how they look. And the figure that James is invoking in verse 4 is the figure of a judge sitting behind the judge's bench. And two people walk into his courtroom. The one is dressed all nice and the other is dressed shabby. And the judge is already biased towards the one who is well-dressed. Is that how justice works? That's a violation of justice. And James says down in verse 9, it is sin. It is sin. And now what I want to add briefly is this, still in the first point. This, all of this, 
is vain religion. Showing favoritism is vain religion. It's aimless, worthless. It's a sham religion. What is pure religion? Pure religion is this. First of all, you control your tongue. You don't control your tongue, your religion is vain. And in the example that James gives, look at the people in church sharing their judgments of that poor man. Maybe even cutting down that poor man with their verbal snubs. You sit here. Just, just get out of the way. Sit down. You're taking up space. What else is pure religion? You visit the fatherless and the widow. You take care of the poor and the needy who come across your path. And in the example that James gives, look at the people in church and how they treat that poor man. Go sit over there. Stand over there. Meanwhile, the rich man gets to sit in the best seat. What else is pure religion? Pure religion is this. You keep yourself unspotted from the world. And in the example that James gives, look at the people in church who are so ready to follow the world's inclination to prefer the rich over the poor. It's earthly. It's all earthly. And think about it this way. How do we usually think about these things? We, we think like this. That man is rich. Well, that must mean that that man is smarter, more disciplined, and a harder worker than the poor man. And so he, mu- he must be a better man. And the poor man is poor. Well, that must mean that he's dumber, undisciplined, lazy, and a liability rather than an asset. That's being very judgmental, beloved. It's a very worldly, earthly way of thinking about something. Especially when we know that God is the sovereign distributor of all the gifts and abilities that men and women are given. This is not spiritual at all. And it's very sinful. And as we'll see next week, or next time, Lord willing, this is just not how true love behaves. But now this is what leads us into the second point of the sermon, We want to appreciate the offensive nature of this sin of favoritism. And there's some language in these verses, verses 1 through 7, that shows us that James wants to emphasize the offensive nature of this sin. One of the reasons is that this sin is so offensive is what we've already mentioned earlier. It's captured in verse 4. Are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges with evil thoughts? James is saying, where's your fairness? Where's your justice? Aren't we supposed to be lovers of justice and doing what's right? But here you are acting like judges who prejudge people solely based on their outward appearance. That's evil. That's evil. You're proud. You're envious. You're earthly. Another reason favoritism is so offensive is found in verses 6 and 7. In verses 6 and 7 we read, But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? And first of all, what James is saying there is this, you're despising the poor. 
And the point is, not only are you placing more value on the soul of the rich man compared to the soul of the poor man, as if the rich man is more worthy of salvation and hearing the gospel than the poor man, that's offensive in itself, but additionally, you are saying that the poor man is even below you. You despise the poor as, they, as if they are less deserving of hearing the gospel. And that's so ironic. Because these saints to whom James was writing were predominantly poor themselves. And now here they are judging themselves to be better, to be better than this poor stranger who walks into church. How ironic, how offensive. And then second of all, what James is saying there is this. Isn't it the very rich who are the ones oppressing you? Isn't it the very rich who are dragging you before judges and persecuting you? And now a rich man walks into church and you suddenly show him favor? Are you that earthly minded? Have you really become that vain in your religion? That superficial? It's like you're throwing yourselves at the feet of those who can support you financially, regardless of where they're at spiritually. Seriously? That's, that's a recipe for letting people take advantage of you. And it's offensive besides. That, that's below the dignity that God's people have in Christ, isn't it? Well, that's verses 4 and 6 and 7. But another reason, a third reason, this sin of favoritism is so offensive is what you read in verses 1 and 5. Let's read those verses again. Verse 1, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. And then verse 5, Hearken, listen, my beloved brethren. Has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. And the point with these verses is this. If you say you are a Christian, if you say you have true faith, then behave yourself as Jesus behaved himself. And even one step further, behave yourself as God behaves. That's the point. Jesus is the one who shows no favoritism. And God is the one who shows no favoritism. And favoritism is so offensive because it is directly contrary to who God is and to the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now that might sound strange at first to hear it put that way, but that's exactly how it is. And I want to show you first that God himself is the impartial God. God is no respecter of persons. That's one of the attributes of God that sometimes we overlook and minimize. Listen to these verses. Second Chronicles 19, verse 7. There is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, you have a very beautiful verse. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, we read this. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible. And then to further demonstrate just how glorious and great God is, Moses adds, which regardeth not persons. That's the glory of God. 
In Malachi 2 verse 9, God says, Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. God says, I judged you. I made you contemptible before others because you had respect of persons. In Acts 10 verse 35, this is something Peter himself, as a, as a full-fledged Jew, had to, had to learn and struggled with. Acts 10, 34 through 35, Peter says, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him, with God. In Romans 2, verse 11, we read, For there is no respect of persons with God. God does not receive. Remember, respect of persons. God does not receive merely the outward appearance of a man. And in Ephesians 6, verse 9, Paul gives this instruction to bosses. He writes, And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. Neither is there respect of persons with him. This truth is emphasized over and over again. God is not a God who is partial, who is a respecter of persons, and this is part of His glory. And that's really what James is emphasizing in verse 1 when he writes, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. What Jesus is saying is this, look at Jesus. What James is saying is this, look at Jesus. Jesus himself is the Lord of glory. He's the glorious one. And you know what is true about Jesus? He neither was a respecter of persons. He preached to all promiscuously. He ate with Simon the Pharisee, and he ate with publicans and sinners. Listen to what his very own enemies had to say about him in Matthew 22, verse 16. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. That was Jesus' reputation. He didn't care for any man. He didn't respect the person of anyone. And especially this. Jesus did not despise the poor for being poor. Look at where he himself was born. Not in a palace. The king of kings, not in a palace was he born, but in a stable. Because he's not only savior for the rich, he's also savior for the poor. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. All who believe in him shall be saved. He turns no one away who comes to him in truth. And what James is saying is this, how can you confess to be a Christian? How can you confess to be a disciple of Jesus and yet be so completely contrary to Jesus and be a respecter of persons? You say you love God, but you don't love your brother in church. You say you love God, but you don't love your sister in church because of this or that or the other thing. How does the love of God dwell in you? If you are willing to embrace certain people into your Christian friendship and keep others out based solely on the external, that's not Christ-like at all. Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Because favoritism simply doesn't line up with who God is and with who Jesus is.
But now here, some of us might be asking ourselves a question. And the question is this, well, what about election, right? What about the whole doctrine of election? Doesn't that imply that God shows favoritism? Doesn't the doctrine of election imply that God shows partiality? Well, not at all, beloved. Not when you actually understand the doctrine of election. The wrong way of understanding election is exactly that way. To think that in the election, God is showing respect of persons. That's exactly how the Pharisees were in Jesus' day. That's how they thought. God shows favoritism. Look, we're the children of Abraham. You're not. God shows favor to the Jews because we have, we're different than you. We're of the physical blood of Abraham. God shows us favor. That's not election, beloved. Election is this, that God, all of grace, without any respect to anything in man, chose to save some and chose not to save others. God did not choose you because God saw something in you that he didn't see in someone else. God did not choose you because you match up to a certain pedigree or because he saw you were a hard worker or he saw that you'd be godly. God never chose anyone based on anything in them. In fact, we could say this, when God looked down on the whole human race, fallen in Adam, there was nothing in anyone that would have commended them to God's choosing in the least. But nevertheless, in mere grace, God chose to save some. That's what grace is. Unconditional election. Not conditioned on anything God sees in you or that you might have that others don't. And to add to that, we could say this. Look at the people whom God has chosen to save. That's the point of verse 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. And the point of verse 5 is this. The children whom God has chosen, the children of God, are predominantly poor folk. The needy, the weak, the oppressed, not the rich. God chooses the poor. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh... Not many mighty, not many noble are called. Look at yourselves, Paul says. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. And then he ends that no flesh should glory, should boast about himself in God's presence. And the point is really this. Don't you know this from yourself and your own experience? Don't you know this personally? God did not choose you because you were greater than anyone else or because you were better than anyone else. You were the worst. Isn't that the perspective we're supposed to have? You were the least of all nations. You were nothing but a sinner. That's who all of us were, nothing but sinners. But God chose you in grace. He showed you unconditional love. 
You have been begotten again with the word of truth. You are now the child of God, an heir of eternal life. And now here you are, being a respecter of persons in the church? Have you forgotten what grace is? Have you forgotten the doctrine of unconditional election? Have you forgotten the gospel? God is no respecter of persons. Oh, look at that person's money. Look at all the gold rings on his hands. Look at his respectable job. Look at his academic attainments and intellectual abilities. Look at his wit. Look at his charm. Look at his skin color. Look at who he is maybe just as a man, as a male. Look at anything external about him. You think it impresses God? You think anything about it impresses God? God is not impressed with any of it. God looks at the heart. Showing favoritism is offensive because it's so contrary to how God has dealt with you and me in Jesus Christ. I speak of the gospel of a full and free salvation in Jesus Christ to all who call upon His name. I myself confess that I've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from anything in myself. All that I am, I am of grace. All that I have, I have first received it of the Lord. And now, I determine how I'm going to interact with others based merely on their outward appearance? No, this is not pure religion. This is not living according to the law of liberty. It's against justice, it's against reason, and it's against who God himself is and who Jesus is. And it's against the gospel. It is vain religion. That's the offensive nature of this sin. Well, I want to end the sermon on a positive note. And so I want to consider the question, how do we avoid it? How do we avoid being a respecter of persons? This is a real struggle, a serious issue. We all know it. We all struggle with it. How do we avoid being a respecter of persons? Well, one answer that I thought about this afternoon to add was this. Get to know people better and stop dwelling at the superficial level. Right? If we just all want to be superficial with each other, what we're actually doing is encouraging respecter of person type thinking. So that we don't actually get to know each other, but all we can judge each other on is our outward appearance, is how we look. And we never show each other the heart of the matter so that we get to know each other. That's, that's what we have to work at, isn't it? Enough with appearances. Let's get to know each other. But what I had written down and what I had thought about earlier was this. I think the answer is implied in the whole passage and in the sermon, but to make it explicit, we could put it this way. We avoid favoritism by staying close to the foot of the cross. That's the issue. We avoid being a respecter of persons by remembering how God has dealt with me personally in Jesus Christ. Because, beloved, at the foot of the cross, we're all equal. Right? The foot of the cross is level ground. We all come with our hands empty, bringing nothing, having nothing, in need of mercy and grace. 
At the foot of the cross, there's no selfishness. There's no desire for self-advancement. There's no inner desire to take advantage of another. Not when you're, you're at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, there is only sorrow over our own sins and great joy in the unspeakable love and grace God has shown us in Jesus Christ. At the foot of the cross, we see clearly the one who is the Lord of glory, who was full of riches, and yet who became nothing and less than nothing for us poor, debted sinners. At the foot of the cross, there's humility, where we are esteeming everyone else better than ourselves. That's the only favoritism you can show. That's what I came across. I thought that was interesting to esteem others better than yourselves. That's the favoritism we can show. At the foot of the cross, there is only true love and thankfulness for what God has done for us. And there is the desire to honor Him in a life of holiness, doing what is right in His sight. At the foot of the cross, there is true love for my neighbor, whoever my neighbor might be and whatever he or she might look like. At the foot of the cross, there is only this desire that I decrease and Jesus increase. At the foot of the cross, we see the glory of God. And we see that He is worthy that we do what He wants us to do and not what we want done. God, give us the grace to live more and more at the foot of the cross. That's the issue. That's the issue. And then, at the foot of the cross... Let's get to know each other and be honest with ourselves and with each other that the gospel itself might have its power and be put on display. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, bring us to sit at the foot of the cross and to stay there with our posture and our disposition that we might be humble and that we might show forth the beauty of God and reflect it in our lives. Help us, Lord, with this issue that plagued the church in James' day and that is a sin that cleaves to us. Forgive our sins and help us. Work within us, Jesus, more and more. Cause us to know the gospel ourselves and to live out of it for the glory of thy name and also for the happiness of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.